Support has been provided by independent educational grants from Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, Sanofi Genzyme, and Eurogen Pharma Incorporated. Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, welcoming you to another AUA Office of Education podcast. This is another in our series on the AUA Expert Exchange podcasts about discussions about managing GU cancer. Today's podcast specifically will talk about sequencing of agents and combination of treatment options for bladder cancer. It is my pleasure to welcome my co-host, Dr. Cheryl Lee. Dr. Lee is professor and chair of the Department of Urology at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, where she holds the Dorothy M. Davis Endowed Chair in Cancer Research. She is also vice president of the Ohio State University Physicians and Faculty Group Practice. Her medical professional focus is dedicated to improving the care of bladder cancer patients through advocacy, education, and research. And she has uh, served uh, on the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network as the president of the Scientific Advisory Board, uh, as a current member of its board of directors, and as past chairman of the Bladder Cancer Think Tank. Uh, Dr. Lee is also active in the education and certification of urologists. She has directed or been a faculty member of postgraduate courses at our annual meetings uh, for over a decade, and I thank her for that commitment. Uh, and she has served uh, on the American Board of Urology Oral Examination Committee, the uh, AUA Education Council, the AUA Program Committee, and the American Board of Urology AUA Examination Committee, as well as the uh, Oncology Knowledge Assessment Test Committee for the Society of Urologic Oncology. She's also an active member of the AUA Update Editorial Board, and I thank her for that as well. Uh, and she is a trustee of the American Board of Urology. So uh, Dr. Lee is quite accomplished, but brings to this podcast a special expertise in bladder cancer. So uh, uh, Cheryl, I welcome you to the podcast. Vic, thank you so much for having me. This is really uh, an honor and a privilege to be able to have really just a conversation with the AUA membership and perhaps some of our trainees uh, to think a little bit about uh, bladder cancer. A lot of the um, comments I may focus on today will relate to non-muscle invasive disease just because there's so much happening uh, right now in that space. And I think people will wanna know about that. That's great. What I'm gonna do before we jump into the podcast is just go over our three learning objectives. The first is to evaluate treatment plans including sequencing and combination of treatment options for individual patients. Number two is to explain best practices in muscle invasive and non-muscle invasive bladder cancer patient selection for various treatment options. And our third is to facilitate discussions with patients and caregivers regarding their treatment options. So I thought we'd start by just talking, you know, we know that especially for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, uh, advanced non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, BCG has become 
a standard of care, but BCG doesn't always work. Uh, and lots of our therapies are sent are focused around BCG unresponsive bladder cancer. But I think it's important for our audience to understand exactly what it means to be BCG, to have had gotten adequate BCG and to be declared as BCG unresponsive. Well, um, I think you're making some great points. Uh, we think about uh, whether or not BCG is effective for patients, but also whether it's available. You know, we've had uh, a number of episodes in the past few years for protracted periods of time when P uh, providers uh, and practitioners just have not had access to BCG because of the manufacturing shortage. Now, good news is that um, uh, Merck is working to increase production of BCG. They're actually developing uh, and building a new facility. So in the next probably three to five years, we're gonna see a greater production uh, in the US and across the world. Now that doesn't help us right this moment, um, but I think it's important for people to know that. Um, so you brought up the issue of BCG unresponsive disease, and I think it is important to think about what this means. You know, uh, years ago, we had occasional drugs being uh, evaluated in this space uh, of patients who had been treated with BCG and then had recurrences, so to speak. Um, you know, over, but it was difficult to compare patients from trial to trial to trial. So the FDA got together with thought leaders in bladder cancer and really came up with some definitions around uh, how patients are responding to BCG and also some guidance for our pharmaceutical partners to say, uh, what are the important endpoints in large clinical trials that we should be looking at and actually requiring that those be primary and secondary uh, objectives, but particularly primary objectives, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. That's important as we think about comparing results from one agent uh, to the next in this same population of patients. So what is BCG unresponsive disease? Well, um, this is uh, a real, like I said, it's a, a pretty formal definition, and you can think about it as um, including groups from three different uh, populations. One is the, the group of patients who have had adequate BCG and they've had a relapse or a recurrence within six months of the last BCG exposure. And that BCG exposure, uh, excuse me, that BCG um, post exposure is a recurrence with high grade TA or T1 bladder cancer. Okay, so patients had BCG, they had a recurrence with TA or T1 disease within six months of their last BCG exposure. Another population is the uh, BCG refractory tumor uh, in the patient with carcinoma in situ that has had persistent or recurrent CIS within 12 months of completing BCG therapy. Now they also may have some papillary disease, but this part of the definition is particularly with carcinoma in situ. And this is an important component because this is often one of the primary endpoints uh, that some of the uh, pharmaceutical partners are using in, in large-scale clinical trials. The third group is that population with high-grade T1 disease that is found, you know, at that first uh, cystoscopic surveillance check at three months to, uh, to, you know, to have, or that a patient is found to have high-grade T1 disease at that first surveillance point. So they might have started with T1, but they also might have started with, with TA or CIS or 
or any, any uh, high-risk bladder cancer component, but at the first check, they have T1 disease. And Cheryl, I assume that that first check, if somebody had high-grade T1 disease, one should follow the standard of re-resection, and then it would be, would it be recurrence after that re-resection? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and in fact, it would be recurrence not only after the re-resection, but after an adequate course Correct. of BCG, and I'm going to help define that too in just a moment, but uh, after that adequate course of BCG, then you, you have your surveillance check at three months and you see T1 disease. Right. I just, um, I just, I just like to make sure that our, our audience understands that we want to follow, follow our guidelines and make sure that um, we, we, we followed the guidelines with respect to, to an adequate resection and, and a re-resection when necessary. And I should mention that as we think about the guidelines and we talk about these different populations with BCG unresponsive disease, we cannot forget about radical cystectomy as a very effective surgical tool to treat patients with high-risk non-muscle invasive disease. Now, everybody's not going to be eligible for that. Everybody's not going to agree to that because obviously there are uh, there is real morbidity to the operation and their quality of life implications. Uh, but let me um, also help uh, our listeners think about adequate uh, courses of BCG. What is an adequate course of BCG? Well, the FDA has defined that uh, when we think about BCG, someone must have received five of six of the intended weekly induction treatments and then uh, have had some uh, some component of maintenance therapy, at least two of the intended three weekly treatments, or they had a second induction course. So they had five of six in the first induction course, and then uh, they had some component of maintenance therapy, either two, two of three intended weekly treatments, or they, did or they had a second induction course. So if they haven't had that, and they really haven't had a full adequate exposure to BCG and they won't be considered BCG unresponsive. Uh, quick, I have a quick question for you. And that is in, with some of the guidelines that have been released to you in the BCG shortages when BCG is not available and lesser doses of BCG are used, um, do we still follow the same definitions for adequate BCG? That's a great question. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, the, B, the, the definition for BCG, uh, adequate BCG will remain the same. However, we recognize that um, many folks may not have access to BCG. And when there's a shortage, certainly there's some important things that people can consider. Uh, they can consider one year of maintenance uh, instead of three years of maintenance, particularly for high-grade TA. Uh, they can consider two of three maintenance treatments. One is not going to be enough, but two of three, uh, and that would even still potentially qualify for the adequate BCG uh, definition. If they are doing maintenance and they have the BCG to do it, then they can reduce the dose to a third of the dose. Uh, now, from the uh, EORTC 30962 trial, which was published several years ago, we learn in a comparison of uh, BCG dosage strengths and times of delivery that 
in that case of reducing the dose, we'll probably see more recurrences, but not more progression and not more mortality. So in this uh, period of shortage, it's worth it for us to, to go ahead and reduce that dose. But even during the uh, BCG shortage, we'd still like to take our highest risk patients like those with CIS or T1 disease and really have them get full dose BCG and full dose maintenance if possible. Um, uh, it's important to know that we have a lot of new agents now. And uh, with that, we also have a lot of clinical trials. Uh, so it's, it's uh, I think, incumbent upon us to recognize that we do have some options for patients even during the BCG shortage. Um, it's also key to know that we've been optimizing our chemotherapies and whether they're uh, delivered independently uh, or in sequence, um, we can use those strategies with chemotherapy during this time of BCG shortage. And we can talk a little bit about some really uh, interesting data using sequential gemcitabine and docetaxel that was published earlier this year. All right, so let's talk about, we, we've talked a little bit about BCG unresponsive disease and what adequate BCG is. What do we have available to us now for BCG unresponsive disease? Well, I think, um, you know, for many people, uh, you know, they will have heard about a lot of different uh, new agents. They may or may not have access to them uh, either in their own institutions, their own hospital systems, or they may not be near some of the clinical trial. So I want to start first with our intravesical chemotherapy. Now, we know that um, single agent gemcitabine has been studied in the context of uh, patients who did not respond well to the BCG. And although we've had some early evidence of uh, activity and efficacy with complete response rates uh, at three to 12 months, you know, probably in the range of 50% at three months and in the range of 20% or so at 12 months, um, we know there's, there's activity there. We know we've seen activity uh, with docetaxel, but we're seeing synergistic activity when they're both used together. So I want to bring up the uh, sequential gemcitabine and docetaxel uh, retrospective study uh, that was multi-center and was published recently uh, led by Mike O'Donnell uh, at Iowa. Uh, in that study, they had uh, over 270 patients who had been uh, treated with this kind of sequential intravesical chemotherapy. This is still in the bladder. Um, and these patients really uh, had really uh, positive response rates. So at 12 months after treatment, patients had an overall recurrence-free survival of about 60%. And at two years, for, you know, 45 to 46%. I, I just want to say that that is um, extremely encouraging. Now, this was a retrospective study. So obviously, there's going to be some biases in it. But I think uh, it's really provocative. And it may be time to look at that sequential strategy uh, against some of these newer agents. So I, I do think it's important to consider our older uh, agents that we have and optimizing them. I do want to say that um, that strategy of sequential chemotherapy is pretty well tolerated by patients. I use it a fair amount. 
Um, and probably about 40% of patients may have some type of adverse event. But in that study that was published, less than 10% of people uh, had their adverse events actually impacted their treatment. So um, uh, I think that's important to know that it's a tolerable uh, strategy for patients. Uh, and um, for the office staff, the workflow is feasible. Uh, and, um, and I think well uh, adopted by several centers across the country. Um, so I think, I think one, we start with that docetaxel and gemcitabine combination. How about immunotherapy for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer? Where are we with that? You know, um, I think everybody has heard about the checkpoint inhibitors that um, really have been uh, showing a lot of activity in bladder cancer, particularly in urothelial carcinoma of the bladder. You know, in the past few years, we saw several of these agents, pembrolizumab, uh, atezolizumab, a lot of the, you know, durvalumab, nivolumab, avelumab, all of these agents being tested in the advanced setting in bladder cancer. So those with metastatic disease. And what we saw was probably around, you know, 15 to 20% response rates, but um, there was enough uh, uh, activity there and improved uh, periods of survival that it was approved by all of those drugs got approved by the FDA for use in uh, metastatic bladder cancer. Now, I think you know what that means. If there's activity in the more advanced state, then people are going to start exploring that in earlier stages of disease. And that's just what happened. And in particular, uh, pembrolizumab um, was not only studied, but already reported data in the Keynote 57 study. And I think this is, this is an important trial because not only um, did it show that, that there were, uh, I would say, very reasonable response rates, uh, complete response rates at three months, again, around 40% or so. And these are patients who are BCG unresponsive. But even at a year, um, there were still response rates uh, uh, for patients with high-grade disease who were actually uh, free of recurrence, about 30 to 35%. So this is much, these are much higher rates of response and recurrence-free survival that we have seen uh, in the past when our salvage agent was, uh, say, valrubicin, you know, 10 or, 10 or 15 years ago, which was the only other FDA uh, drug approved for intravesical therapy for patients who, um, you know, still recurred after BCG. So pembrolizumab is a real option. It's FDA approved. It's not only FDA approved for the metastatic setting, but it's also now FDA approved as of January of this year for use in the setting of non-muscle invasive disease. Now, that is a systemic agent. That's not an intravesical drug. So we have to think about what's the side effect profile. And so you're gonna see more systemic uh, toxicities. Some of the more common ones, you might see pruritus in about 10%, fatigue also in about 10% of people, uh, diarrhea, you can see in eight or 9% of folks. Uh, hypothyroidism is an important one to keep in mind. It happens in about five to 6% of people, uh, but it's cer certainly something we don't usually uh, think to look at, but if we have any suspicion, then we should be considering, uh, you know, checking a, a thyroid stimulating hormone level. 
Are the, are the um, dos are the dosages the same as they would be for metastatic disease, or, or is it a different dosing schedule? And we'll talk a little bit more about immune therapy for metastatic disease in, in a few minutes. Yeah, I mean, the doses are similar. In fact, what we've done, and I think, um, you know, this is going to vary across the country. Uh, but what we have done is uh, partner with our medical oncologists. I think we've, you know, we've seen that in a lot of the clinical trials that uh, because medical oncologists often deliver these agents and because uh, bladder um, urologists generally manage these patients, we're coming together and collaborating on this. Now, many large urology groups have their own infusion units uh, and have uh, nurses that are very capable uh, and comfortable uh, delivering systemic therapies, looking for toxicities, and then treating those toxicities. And there are people uh, in those practices that are accessible. So I, I think we'll see a, a variety of strategies to try to deliver these agents uh, and whether a group is able to have that kind of inventory. I think it'll probably depend on how many different populations they're treating because obviously there is there's an opportunity to use pembrolizumab not only in bladder cancer, but also in kidney cancer and also uh, opportunities for other disease states. So. Um, I think you'll see a variety of collaborations. In our particular institution, um, in the academic setting, we collaborate with our medical oncologists. Cheryl, what is the current state of chemotherapy for bladder cancer? Neoadjuvant, uh, treatment for metastatic disease, where are we with chemo? You know, um, I think we, we are fortunate in that we were able to uh, you know, using level one evidence, really create a new standard, you know, in the past couple of decades in bladder cancer, showing that uh, neoadjuvant uh, cisplatin-based chemotherapy can improve survival by about five to seven percent or so. Uh, and most patients will, and that's for muscle invasive bladder cancer. Um, mo most patients will tolerate that uh, fairly well. Um, you know, there certainly are toxicities and, you know, a, a, a biggie is neurotoxicity and certainly bone marrow toxicity. Uh, so some, uh, and also nephrotoxicity. So if, um, if a patient has poor renal function has, uh, or hearing loss is another important one. If they have significant hearing loss, uh, they already have um, myelodysplastic disorders, uh, any of these uh, uh, renal insufficiency, any of these issues that would preclude them from using neoadjuvant chemotherapy, then we're really thinking about entertaining either primary cystectomy or looking at something like um, a checkpoint inhibitor in the neoadjuvant setting. Now, most of that's in the context of a clinical trial, uh, but we did have some evidence from the PURE study uh, showing almost, you know, are uh, up to 40 or 42 percent complete response rates in patients who uh, received uh, neoadjuvant pembrolizumab before cystectomy. Uh, and that complete response is based on a pathologic uh, T0 rate, which is one of the surrogates we use in bladder cancer to look at the efficacy of our neoadjuvant treatments. So, um, you know, that, that, that data is from a phase two study um, that came out a year or two, a couple years ago. But I, I should say a lot of other trials have been exploring the use of other agents in the neoadjuvant setting, particularly for those who are ineligible for cisplatin. But that cisplatin still remains our, our most effective systemic chemotherapy. 
for, again, muscle invasive bladder cancer. And how about immunotherapy now in, you know, primarily in the, in the setting of metastatic uh, bladder cancer? Yeah, I mean, um, this is still considered first line, um, but I will say, uh, you know, when we think about um, ability to cure patients, uh, you know, systemic chemotherapy really hasn't been felt to be a curative agent in the context of metastatic disease, uh, particularly with visceral nets. Now, um, the importance of all of these other agents that are being developed, like the checkpoint inhibitors, uh, and then there's a couple of other important ones, um, a targeted therapy uh, called ertafitinib, that's an FGFR um, uh, inhibitor, and that's the fibroblast growth factor receptor uh, inhibitor that was FDA approved uh, in 2019. Uh, so we have agents like that that can be used in the, uh, in the second or even third line. We have drugs like uh, anfortimab vendotin that has uh, been shown to have good response rates in people who have not responded well to systemic chemotherapy or to uh, checkpoint inhibition. Um, so we have checkpoint inhibitors. We have uh, a couple of these new agents, targeted therapy or defitinib. We have uh, uh, enfortimab, vendotin. All, all of this, in my mind, means we have a first line as our cisplatin-based therapy for metastatic disease. And then we have checkpoint inhibition. And then we even have a couple of other agents, uh, particularly for those who have uh, not responded to the checkpoint inhibitors. And those checkpoint inhibitors are probably, you're gonna see 15 to 20% responders. So what we're developing in bladder cancer is, is something that we've seen in other organ sites where you really have first, second, third, and potentially fourth line therapies for patients so that we can truly try to uh, extend survival. I mean, we have some of these very heavily pretreated patients uh, that were um, uh, treated, let's say, in the ertafitinib study. Uh, and these are patients that had uh, lots of visceral metastasis, uh, you know, did not respond to chemotherapy, uh, perhaps even didn't respond to uh, uh, checkpoint inhibition, and still showing, you know, somewhere between uh, 40 to 50 or even up to 60 percent um, response rates, depending on what context you're looking at. So when you see uh, uh, responses like that, I think you have to be uh, pretty excited. Now, um, some of these agents are very targeted. The ertafitinib, again, is targeted uh, in patients who have those FGFR uh, alterations. So that's a very targeted and specific therapy. But the um, enfortimab vedotin also uh, was looked at in heavily pretreated patients, those who had not responded to chemotherapy, uh, those with visceral metastases, and again, still seeing uh, response rates in the 40 plus percent with complete response rates, you know, in 10 to 15 percent. So um, these are really encouraging, uh, I think, messages for patients with advanced disease that we, we really are extending life. I, I feel like the, uh, kidney cancer kind of went through this uh, you know, 10 years ago um, with so, so many of the targeted therapies uh, and then beyond, of course. But um, so this is an exciting time for bladder cancer. 
So we have chemotherapy. Then we mentioned immune uh, immunotherapy as our as our next treatment, and then we started to talk about some of these other things. We'll come back to targeted therapy in a moment, but how about gene therapy for bladder cancer? Um, so one, I think um, I'm going to come back to our non-muscle invasive uh, patients and those in this context of BCG unresponsive disease, where we actually have some pretty recent data using a gene therapy uh, that, um, again, we're seeing some very positive responses in. The agent, natopharagene feridenovic, uh, is uh, a gene therapy that uses an adenoviral vector system, uh, and some of the uh, gene, uh, the brain cells, as it were, are removed, and there's a, a reproductive sequence uh, uh, implanted into the virus that will help to gener generate, that help a cell generate interferon alpha uh, uh, proteins. So uh, that virus gets taken up by the cell and then that cell can start making this interferon that will then uh, attack the cancer. So uh, it, it can be a very, it's a very interesting strategy. It started in the, um, you know, at MD Anderson, uh, in the laboratory of Colin Denny. And, uh, and this has been studied all the way in you know, phase one, phase two, and more recently in a uh, phase three multi-center study that was re, uh, uh, presented early, uh, earlier this year. And I think the important part about this, um, before I mention the results, is, is the delivery. So it's delivered um, you know, every three months, once, intravesically every three months. And that's delivered, let's say month one, month four, month seven, month 10, all the way out to a year. And I think if people are responding, they can continue to get additional doses. But think about that for the patient, you know, one dose every three months, as opposed to one weekly dose for six weeks. And then, uh, and then some of the challenges that that brings in terms of stress and transportation and, uh, and toxicity. So I think uh, that's important. I would say uh, the drug in general is, is pretty well tolerated as we think about intravesical agents. Uh, and we might see some of the some, some toxicities that uh, we might see in, in other intravesical agents. Uh, there's about a uh, you know 20% uh, rate of bladder spasm, uh, close to 20% rate of urinary uh, urgency. Uh, maybe 15% rate or so of hematuria. Uh, you know, they, there is some fatigue, uh, and this is probably relates to the viral delivery system. Uh, that's about 24-25%. So, yeah, the side effect uh, profile uh, can be a little bit different, but not so different, frankly, than what we've seen with immunotherapy uh, with BCG for many years. And when we think about how is it performed in this BCG unresponsive space. Uh, so again, these are patients who are pretty, you know, these are pre-treated with uh, BCG and, and so moderately pre-treated here. Um, when you looked at the uh, phase three data at three months, they saw complete response rates over 50%. Um, and uh, when you looked at a year, particularly in the CIS category, so this is this group of patients with carcinoma in situ, uh, they might also have papillary disease, but they have carcinoma in situ, um, close to 25% response rates at 
a year. So I think that's important because that's a tough, that's a tough nut to crack. In other words, those are tough patients to treat. And when you look at those who had papillary disease, let's say high grade TAT1 without CIS now, those patients still have over a 40% response rate at a year. So, you know, a decade, two decades ago, uh, we would be lucky to see, uh, you know, 10 to 20% response rates at a year or two uh, in these patients who hadn't responded, uh, you know, to BCG. So when I think about some of these results coming out, I would say it's, it's very encouraging uh, for patients. Do you think, this may be a tough question, but do you think that gene therapy, if approved, would be the next step after BCG, or do you still think that sequential intravesical chemotherapy would be, or does it depend on the patient? You know, I think um, that's a great question. And I've been thinking of myself, how I could, how we could study that and try to figure out uh, what really is the best second line. Of course, we don't have any data uh, on that, but I will say like any set of uh, drugs and treatments, we have to think about the patient, their own comorbidities, um, what some of the toxicities might be of the drug, the cost of it, is it covered by insurance, um, the ability to deliver it in your own practice. You know, can you have inventory of it? Is your hospital willing to stock it? What's, what's that cost like? Uh, and also, uh, what's, what's the workflow like in delivery? Um, I think if, uh, in terms of the chemotherapy, the sequential chemotherapy, that's a very familiar um, treatment administrative approach for us in urology. So I, I see that as, um, you know, a, a very real second line. I use it very commonly myself. Um, the pembrolizumab is something that we, we see a lot of in our institutions and in our health systems, particularly because it's being used very broadly in the metastatic setting. And particularly when you're partnering with medical oncology for us, um, it makes uh, real sense to consider that as another line, as that next line, uh, in addition to the fact that it is FDA approved now and probably insurance coverage may be a, a greater reality for patients unless they're on a clinical trial. Um, I was just gonna say for those offices that are smaller and don't have an infusion unit and aren't readily able to partner with medical oncology, uh, then, you know, that could be a challenge uh, in, in trying to consider that as your, uh, you know, first line after BCG unresponsive state. Any other unique agents for the treatment of bladder cancer? Yeah, I mean, I think um, um, I mentioned the ertafitinib, and that is, uh, we were talking about that in the context of metastatic disease, but uh, Gary Steinberg, uh, at NYU is leading a, a study in uh, the context of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, BCG unresponsive state, uh, trying to look at that uh, targeted strategy in those patients. Now that's a study that's accruing now, but that's gonna be something we'll look forward to. Um, there's also uh, opertuzumab monotox, which is um, a, a fusion protein strategy, it uses a fusion protein strategy, essentially uh, to um, attack uh, bladder cancer, again, in this non-muscle invasive space with BCG unresponsive. 
uh, uh, disease. And this is a, um, uh, it's a drug that's been studied uh, and is being studied in a phase three multi-center trial. This, this is an agent that is uh, instilled um, in the bladder a, a little bit more rigorously than we're used to, two times a week for six weeks, then weekly for six weeks as an induction. Um, and then for those who are disease-free, they can go on to get maintenance. Uh, and those are every two weeks for up to a year. So it's a little bit more rigorous uh, from that context uh, than we're used to. But in some preliminary uh, reporting that Neil Shore did uh, earlier this year, uh, when they looked at, again, this, this, these patients in the BCG unresponsive space, uh, they also showed some very encouraging uh, data with 40% complete response rates in the CIS population at three months. And so that's fairly competitive with some of the other uh, agents I've been talking about. And then uh, out to a year, uh, close to 30% or so uh, response rate. So again, I would say these are uh, somewhat um, responsive when you think about recurrence-free survival, or these are com uh, somewhat competitive um, agents together when, when we're trying to think about durable uh, recurrence-free survival. Um, that particular agent uh, has, um, you know, has had some serious adverse events. I think in the early reporting, it was about 14% serious adverse events uh, with, with some people having acute kidney injury, a small percentage having intestinal obstruction, and some having serious hematuria or urinary tract infection. I think they even had um, one death in that study. Although Keynote, Keynote 57 that studied the pembrolizumab also had one death uh, in that study, I think related to colitis. So we, we have to keep thinking about, again, the toxicity, the patient, the uh, best patient, the availability of the drug, uh, and, then, and then of course, um, you know, how the patient can access it with, in terms of insurance coverage and that kind of thing. And will your hospital stock it? Your, uh, your formulary, that we can't forget about that also. Well, it certainly seems like there are a multitude of new current and potentially more in the future treatments for both non-muscle invasive and muscle invasive bladder cancer. It seems like in the last couple of decades, we have certainly come a long way and it's uh, uh, folks like yourself that are so dedicated uh, to this disease and to uh, improving outcomes and ultimately curing it um, that really, uh, I think, are, are responsible for this uh, explosion in therapies uh, for the treatment of bladder cancer. Uh, Cheryl, before we close, any last words that you'd like to, to tell our audience? Um, I, I would, actually. I think it is important to uh, still go back to our basics when we think about uh, bladder cancer patients and that half of them are smokers. So please, we should all remember to remind our patients to stop smoking uh, and that, uh, you know, e-cigarettes have their own, uh, you know, set of carcinogens that, that are still, um, uh, still contributing to the disease. So one, let's ask people to stop smoking um, and either uh, uh, be able to provide counseling for patients or work with our family uh, physicians and general internists to help provide that kind of support for patients. Uh, if you belong to a comprehensive cancer center, we need to take advantage of all that they offer in terms of uh, behavioral 
uh, st strategies like, like that. So uh, I just want to make that comment. And then lastly, always, uh, um, I think we need to all thank um, one of our premier bladder cancer advocacy organizations, the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, that has worked so hard with so many stakeholders in this disease, uh, really to try to improve the care for bladder cancer patients and to stimulate the interest of our industry partners to always keep looking at our disease uh, and bringing uh, novel drugs and, uh, and, and also beating the drum on, on Capitol Hill uh, that we need more funding for the disease. So uh, just a small shout out to the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network. Dr. Cheryl Lee, Professor and Chair of the Department of Urology at the, at the Ohio State University. Uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, really terrific insights today. Um, it really has been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. Uh, it was really an honor to participate. I would also uh, like to thank our audience. And as always, if you have, uh, if you seek more information, please visit us at auanet.org slash university. Thank you.